Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Thank you so much for joining us. Our, um, we're, we're really excited. I have been uh, a fan of uh, David Morse's work for a very long time. I was not a TV kid, but there were two TV shows I always made a point of seeing when, um, when I was uh, in high school. Um, one was uh, Hill Street Blues. The other was St. Elsewhere. And um, God, you just you made such an impression on that show. You were kind of the, uh, the, the human heart of it. And um, uh, it was it's, it's funny that show is not uh widely seen in syndication oh it's not at all and that, that's part of the reason i think they uh they stopped it is because they couldn't they couldn't syndicate it why not uh and especially at that time you know hill street because it was first of all it was there was nothing like it on tv yeah and 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 saying elsewhere and because it was serialized at that time they were even cutting up you probably remember this shows like magnum pi Cutting them up into half-hour episodes. Yeah, um, you know, it was all junk like that. NBC actually had picked us up for a seventh season, but MTM said we're not selling this thing, so they canceled it themselves, which was hmm. maybe a relief, but sort of a shame at the same time because we we finally had more people watching the show than we ever had. But it was an amazing show to be a part of. That's for sure. Yeah, no, it was incredible. And you guys, not to give anything away for folks who haven't seen it, and may someday one of the great series finales of all time. Uh, television absolutely loved it. Um, but yeah, and sort of so from then on, I was always kind of keeping an eye out for you. And you were in so many great things, and I'm going to obviously leave out most of them, I'm sure. But things like um, you know, you would pop up on uh, uh, you know things like Homicide and The Deuce and Treme, of course. There's Joe's cell phone. Uh, Escape at Danamora recently, which I loved. Uh, you're in the Good Lord Bird right now. The Slaughter Rule. Dancer uh, in the Dark. I mean, I'm leaving out so many. You you did, um, and you're coming to us from uh, my hometown and one of Joe's adopted hometowns, Philadelphia, where you did Hack, which um, I was so pleased. So many shows claim to be set. So many things are set in Philly, and then you realize they're being shot somewhere else. But um, uh, Hack was actually shot in Philadelphia. It actually was. It was the first series that was ever completely shot in Philadelphia. Really? Those would go there and they'd do their two weeks and do mm-hmm. some locations, you know, and then go back to L.A. or whatever. It was, it was really the first one ever shot uh, here. Um, and, and it was, you know, it was expensive. There were no tax credits then. Right. So it was a big deal. And they kept saying, would you put, do you, you think, you, would you mind just if we shot it in Toronto? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 
Yeah. This, this show is as Philadelphia is as much part of this show as I am. And I and I and I don't want to do that. Ah, uh, well, I, I thank you. I tried like that when we did History of Violence, which has a sequence at the end set in Philadelphia. That we, we came that close to actually shooting in Philly, but then yeah, went off to Canada, of course. So well, which, uh, you probably remember from being in Philly, it, it is one of the great cities for neighborhoods. Yeah. We shot everywhere in the city. Yeah. Um, and one of the great things was having people owning the series no matter what neighborhood you went into they felt like the show was their show oh mm -hmm. i can imagine yeah hey yo hack <laughs> right everywhere yeah. you went <laughs> yeah, sure. oh it's fantastic and then um uh you were in a movie too that just um uh just knocked my socks off um and and it was one of those things you know i'm not an actor we all tend to think we have good taste in these things but i don't, I don't know from acting but um, it's it's such a thrill when someone like Sean Penn, who's sort of widely regarded as you know as one of the great actors of all time, yeah. um, he went off to direct his first movie, Indian Runner, which is an amazing film, and and cast you in the lead, which to me was I'm sure it was amazing for you. To me, it was a validation of my phenomenal taste in in actors. Uh, you know, was uh, such a fan of yours to see that. Um, uh, you know, to to me that means you're officially an actor's actor. Sean Penn is casting you in the lead of a film. Well, I have to say, it, I, it was it was a total shock to me that he that he he reached out to me. Apparently, when I did Inside Moves with Dick Donner, mm. you know, he was a teenager then, and he wrote a letter to me when he saw the movie. And I never, I don't remember the letter at all. Um, and his father, Leo, directed uh, an episode of Saint Elsewhere. Oh, sure, yeah. Leo was fantastic. Um, uh, the the creators of the show weren't so crazy about him because he would cut the whole show in his head and tweet what he wanted and give them these movie guys, out. movie guys. <laughs> yeah. so they weren't crazy about that, but we had a great uh, couple of weeks with them, and he talked to me about Sean. He said Sean was a big fan of mine, which I, you know, Sean was one of the big movie stars in the world at that yeah. time. I couldn't believe it. Um, and then he had already cast Vigo from something from a small role role Vigo had done. And he asked if I'd come meet him up in his big place in the Malibu Hills. And uh, we just talked and he, he fought for me. Uh, I, I originally wasn't going to have to do a screen test, but we wound up doing a, a screen test up on top of that hill in his house. And, and he wrote a scene that was not in the movie itself. I got upset about it. I felt like it was sort of cheating. I, there was something about it. It wasn't, it wasn't the character. Mm. And he eventually, he told me before we did it, I wasn't happy I would do this scene, and it was very emotional. And he said, listen, I know the other people who are testing for this won't be able to do this scene. I wrote it so you can do it. I know you can do this. Um, and I went in there, we shot the scene. Valeria was there, Patricia was there, Vigo was there. And at the, uh, at the end of all of it, the producers who really didn't want me in the movie, they wanted a big movie star, they came to Sean and said, He's, he's the guy. And, uh, fantastic. It was fantastic. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that, that's, it's such an amazing film. And um, uh, I mean, just so, so many elements that I loved as a huge Springsteen fan. The idea of adapting one of his songs was intriguing to me as a Sean Penn fan, seeing him direct as a fan of yours, seeing you get to be the lead. And my God, and then, and then to see him, you know, and to see Charles Bronson get a, get a real part in something was... Uh, uh, that was amazing too. You know, I, I, originally Gene Hackman was going to do it. Mm. He apparently had kind of a heart attack. Something went on. Some health issue happened. He had to back out. 
And then they were talking about John Foy and um, I don't remember who it else was. And then Sean said, what do you think of Charles Bronson? Well, I only knew Deathwish. Right. Um, and I wasn't sure it was going to be a great idea. And, and as soon as you saw him, the story was completely told. You just look at his face, you look at his presence, you feel his presence. You almost don't need any more story in this family. Yeah. Yeah. No background, you totally get it. And his wife, his wife had just died. Mm. And it really felt like it was important for him to do this movie on multiple levels um, with his own grief about his wife. Not speaking about it publicly, but it was a way right. for him to kind of address it. Uh, makes sense. Yeah. Wow. Oh, well, that's an amazing film. And by the way, to our listeners, if you have not seen Indian Runner, please, please do. Because um, yeah. it also introduced me to an actor, obviously, I'm very fond of, Viggo Mortensen. Um, and, and now you're in, uh, uh, God, I think we, we, we just watched The Virtuoso last week. You're in a new film, The Virtuoso, uh, which is, I honestly don't know what I thought I was getting in for, but by the time I was done, I was like, oh my God, this is like a legitimate, just straight up pure film noir in the classic sense. It felt like a David Goodis novel. Um, I just, I, I, I loved it. The casting is great because pretty much everybody is someone you know. And you're never sure if, you know, that's meaningful or if they're just going to walk in and out of a scene. It just, it really plays with you in, in kind of lovely ways. And, I, I actually haven't seen it. So they ah. sent me the link uh, to it. And I, and I tried to use my phone, you know, Apple phone and stream it on my TV. Yeah. Apparently Google and Apple don't really play well together. Oh, no. <laughs> it, wouldn't, it wouldn't let me do it. Said, well, I'm not going to watch this on my phone. I don't want to watch it on my iPad. Um, when I get a chance to see it for real, I'll, I'll, I'll go see it. Well, you know, yeah. you may you may actually get a chance to see it in a theater because they seem to be opening up. Oh, that'd be great. It'd be a fun place to see it. Yeah, it'd be fantastic. Yeah, it's a, it's a great looking movie too. And um, that's crazy. If anybody involved with the film is listening, please please send David a Blu-ray or DVD. That's, uh, <laughs> <laughs> seems, like, not all. seems like you ought to be able to see it. Um, yeah, but that's that's out now. As you're listening to this, it's streaming all over the place, and you can actually buy it on DVD or Blu-ray. In fact, it's at our uh, we, have a, we have a new sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com, and you can get it through them as well. And speaking of them, um, we want to pause a moment to thank our new sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com. They're the movie collectors' website. They're not just huge fans of our show, but they feature many, if not all, of the movies we talk about here, so you can easily find them and add them to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you watch what you want, when you want, and there's a ton, a ton of great content and bonus features like director's commentaries, deleted scenes, and all sorts of goodness. Plus, you own it. It's yours. That's right. Physical media. We're all about physical media here. It's, it's, uh, it, it, you never have to worry about your Wi-Fi going out. Uh, you know, If your cat gets up on the furniture, you've got something you can throw at them. It's, it's the best. Uh, so you can buy all your favorites at moviesunlimited.com. You're going to find classics, imports, hard to find films, and of course, lots of new releases too. And they have an amazing import section too, if you're a complete nerd like me. Uh, the prices are fantastic. The choices are endless. You can own the titles you love, enjoy all the bonus features you just don't get elsewhere. So click the Movies Unlimited banner on our website and buy your favorites from hard to find films, imports, and more. Go now to moviesunlimited.com the movie collector's website where shipping is always free on orders over $50. So don't be afraid to spend a lot of money. That's right. Uh, Joe, they're from Philadelphia. That's I remember right. they, they, I used to pick up, they have, this, they have a fantastic catalog, which uh, if you go to the website, mu.com, 
and you sign up, uh, you can get the catalog and um, it's great. It's like, it's just an amazing reference book full of almost every movie that's out on video. Moviesunlimited.com. But um, it's really, really terrific film. It just sort of, it's, it's right where I live in those sort of, uh, very, very much a kind of loving throwback to a kind of movie that um, is, is too hard to get made these days. So. Well, I, I thought the script was terrific. I thought it was really clever. Yeah. And, you know, it didn't hurt that Anthony Hopkins was in it. Yeah, that's, 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 that's what I should have mentioned. Yeah. <laughs> There's that other guy. He's in it. <laughs> yeah, Eddie Marsan. Um, you know, Anson, I, I didn't know him, but I do have the same agency, and they spoke really highly of him. And, and Nick is local. He's, um, he's in Conchahawken, I think. Mm. Uh, just outside of Philadelphia. Um, I thought this would be this would be fun. It's, we're going to shoot nearby up in the Poconos. And oh, is that where you shot it? Oh, fantastic! Yeah, uh, maybe that's that's why I felt like I've been there before. It's been yeah. a very long time. Uh, well, cool, man. Well, thank you, thank you for coming on. We're really psyched to talk to you. I know you wanted to talk about um, kind of collaborations between directors and actors that have inspired you over the years. Is that a, a fair assessment of the? I would say that. I would say you know. Um, you know, you were saying, you know, what, what kind of forms you, I, I never really, I started out in theater. I started on repertory theater in Boston. Um, I went right from high school. I was 17. I went into repertory theater and, uh, we were doing true, you know, true, true rep. We were doing three or four different productions every week, you know, every night, you know, moving sets around. And on the days off, there was the Orson Welles cinema over in, uh, outside of Harvard, Harvard Square, Mass Ave. Mm-hmm. And that's where we would go. And uh, I didn't think of myself as ever being in movies, not that I didn't think it wouldn't happen. I just wanted to be like those British actors, read everything there was about British actors and all the characters they played and how different they were from thing to thing. Um, but then there were some, um, you know, some movies like those Lena Workmiller movies yeah. uh, with Giancarlo Giannini, who I, I didn't even realize I was seeing the same guy the first couple of movies I saw and then I started figuring out it's the same actor mm. and it was so fascinating to me that he was pulling that off in a movie um, and then you know Alec Guinness doing the same kind of thing in movies and I think that 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 started really fascinating me um, uh, and then you, you know you realize well she's there he's working with this woman they're doing the same thing not only is he doing these different characters but she sees him as he does these different characters uh and and as encouraging that and as hiring him for that uh and that just seemed really something to strive for if anything not even so much to be in the movies but to have that kind of a relationship right uh, uh, and I, you know, I was happy to have experiences that came like that, like with Sean doing Crossing Guard and Indian Runner. Um, and I think that was, uh, you know, really kind of the beginnings of my my movie, my movie desires and interests. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. I'm I'm, I'm always fascinated by that too. The way um, it's 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 lovely when a you know, great, great filmmaker find, finds a great actor that they can sort of go on that journey with. Obviously, the one we always think of is, is Scorsese and De Niro, um, you know, or Joe Dante and Bob Picardo. Uh, is it a, <laughs> but um, uh, yeah, and even as a kid, that kind of stood out to me. Um, 
uh, but I never thought about it from sort of your your point of view, the actor's point of view. I mean, it's uh, it's and you've you've done you've worked with a couple of directors repeatedly. Is that correct? Aside from Sean, well, you know, you know, with with, with Dick Donner, who I did my first film, I'd never never been in front of a camera when I did Inside Moves. Oh wow! Um, so it was a big time education going from theater. You know, I had. Um, when I, when I left Boston, I actually, I studied with a man named Bill Esper in New York. And I was, uh, you know, I had all these sort of gimmicks and tricks and crap I did as an actor from doing so much of that repertory in all those different characters. I, I, I lost track of any truthfulness um, and, and, and going to, to Bill in New York was uh, out of the Sandy Meisner neighborhood playhouse uh, world. Um, he just took all the crap away. And, and it really became about living truthfully, being truthfully in those circumstances. And then, you know, someone like Spencer Tracy became the guy. Hmm. Uh, he just seemed to be the epitome of that in, in movies and didn't need all that stuff. But you still got the sense he's this complete human being, this um, whoever it was, whatever he, whoever he was playing. Um, so I, you know, by the time I got to St. Elsewhere, that's really what I was, I, I was focused on, was, was that kind of, that kind of acting. Right. I'm, I'm also fascinated by, especially the sort of older stars, like, like Spencer Tracy, who were, Cary Grant's another one I think of where he's always Cary Grant, he's always Spencer Tracy, but within that, somehow the performances are so wild and diverse. Um, yeah. I don't even understand that. I, how, yeah. how, <laughs> Uh, and I don't know, is that, is that a good or bad? I mean, I think of, you know, I remember the, what was the first thing I saw you in where you were, cause you played such a beleaguered guy on St. Elsewhere. It was like, you would show up and it was like the weight of the world. And this poor guy trying to raise a kid and all the, and you just had the sadness of the world on you and still trying to do. And then I feel like I can't remember what it was. The next thing I saw you in, you were just this brutal, just monster. And it was just this real shakeup to the point that you become one of those actors where I don't know what to expect. Well, we did, you know, I actually got really kind of slotted because of that role for a while. And it really was really, that was a weight on me. I was not happy about that. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's what people wanted me to do, what I was already doing. Um, so it was, it was certainly, it was the kind of the, the golden age of TV movies. Um, and the, the first TV movie I, I did, I don't know if you remember Levinson and Link. Yeah, yeah, sure. Columbo and yeah, they yeah. were really, really talented. Amazing right? writers. Yeah, they really were amazing. Um, and uh, William Link just died recently, and they were both from here, from Philadelphia. They were from Cheltenham. That's right. Went right. to high school together there and started writing together, creating together there. Um, well, they they wrote a TV movie called Prototype that Christopher Plummer and I did together. And I did that after the first season of Saint Elsewhere. It was the first TV movie I did. And it was sort of based on, no, not sort of based on, it was, it was based on the Frankenstein story of the creator and his creation. And I was basically a computer that Christopher Plummer's character had created. Um, and the, the military took this, this, this creation off and started playing with it and realized they had a real weapon there. And, and when I was returned to the creator, uh, um, Christopher Plummer, he got so upset that the military had been doing this, the government, he runs away with me. And I'm just a computer. And he has no son, they have no children. And he falls in love with this computer over the course of 
the movie. It's just lovely as can be. Um, and that, that, uh, that was just a high standard for me uh, in terms of those movies. And of course, never, not everything could measure up to that. But, but I got to at least move away from the St. Elsewhere character a little bit. Sure, sure. Uh, and I think the thing you might be thinking of was a TV movie, which again was about was Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania area, which was based on a true story of uh, a man who had been released from a hospital for being criminally insane and kidnapped a girl uh, in Shade Gap, Pennsylvania. That's right, yes. And disappeared into the woods for nine days, whatever it was. Um, and it was a pretty radical transformation for me to play this guy with no teeth and yes, yes, as can be with his shotgun and guns and stashes of food hidden up in the mountains and dragging her around. Um, that that's uh, that couldn't have made me more happy. What was the name of that one? Uh, it was called the Cry in the Wild, the taking of Peggy Ann. Mm. So, I can say, so basically, you're, you're calling your agent going, get me something where I kidnap or murder a child. Is that basically? I'm, I'm still saying that. <laughs> uh, yeah, but what, what, do you, what is that thing, do you think? What's that? What is that? Because uh, obviously acting styles have changed. But with someone like Spencer Tracy, how, yeah. how is it that, that he managed to do that? That he managed to sort of give all those varied performances and yet still have that Spencer Tracy thing, whatever that is. I don't know. I get the feeling that he, he was not, you know, and I don't, I want to, you know, I think there are actors who want to be movie stars mm-hmm. and you, you smell it on them and, and they kind of, you know, they, they form that, that world around their movie starness and the character around them. I don't feel that way with Spencer Tracy. Right. I think he was a working guy who respected the characters he was playing and gave himself to the characters. I don't think he had, it's like about, I need to be a movie star. He was a movie star. Didn't, right. didn't he just once say that there, as a, uh, as a piece of advice to another actor, he said, plant your feet on the ground, look the other guy in the eye and tell the truth. That's exactly right, yeah. Um, you know, and I had this sort of duality in, in, in you know, what I like to do. Um, because of what I think maybe because of the way I started doing all these different characters is, is how far can you take a character and not get caught acting? Mm. Um, you know, still be truthful and in an extreme, more extreme kind of character. I like the challenge of that. It doesn't always come off right, but I like the challenge of trying that. But I also like, you know, something like Treme, um, or Indian, Indian Runner, um, or even, you know, Answer in the Dark. Because there's not, there's not a lot more than planting your feet and telling the truth. Yeah, yeah. How, um, so I want to go back to Lena Wormuller for a minute. What, what, uh, do you remember what the first of her films you saw was with the two of them? Or I don't know. I, I don't know if it was Seven Beauties. I, I saw them in order. I don't remember the order they came out. And, I, and I'm not sure I could tell you a lot about them now. I just remember. Uh, Your response. Oh, uh, yeah. It yeah. was great. Um, I think Swept Away was the one that was. Swept Away was, the, I think, the first one. The first one to get attention. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and yeah. Giancarlo Giannini, um, I thought, was going to have a much bigger career. Yeah. Because uh, he was a terrific actor. And then he, 
he shows up occasionally. He showed up in one of the Hannibal movies and he was in Mimic. And uh, But uh, for an actor who's as good as he is, I was just always surprised that he didn't do more stuff. And he, I guess he probably did a lot of Italian things a lot that he never that. saw. Yeah, but um, I thought he would be like a major player, like Belmondo or somebody like that, you know? Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, but you were talking about De Niro. Yeah. Um, and that that kind of partnership. And it's the same thing. You know, the first, when mean, the mean Streets was the first thing probably most of us saw. Yeah. Um, and in Boston, when that first came out, uh, in, it wasn't at the Orson Welles, it was at a, a theater on Boylston Street. And I went there by myself one night to watch this movie, Mean Streets. And, and uh, about halfway through, I could feel it coming. Um, there was a tension in that theater. And these guys started talking. There were different seats around the theater. And they were from, Boston was dangerous then in the 70s. It was a rough, mm. rough way. I just feel these kind of neighborhood guys and they're all in their different seats and they were kind of talking to each other. And, and, and this guy and his girlfriend, the guy turned around and said, would you guys shut up so we can watch the movie? And all these guys went flying over the seats and started stomping and these, this guy pounding oh. the hell out of him. Um, the girl was screaming and, you know, the people in the theater just got the hell out of the theater. And the guy, all those kids then went running. Um, I didn't see the end of the movie. I went to see Mean Streets a second time. The exact same thing happened. No, at the same place? Not the same place. Runs, okay. <laughs> and it was like a, you know, like a year later or something I was seeing it. And it happened. All, I never saw the end of it. But until years later that I saw, saw it. Um, but the um, taxi driver came out. Yeah. And while we were there, the, um, uh, the taxi association in Boston uh, wanted to use, they were having a big benefit, a big, you know, fundraising kind of thing. And they thought, oh, this would be cool to to have Taxi Driver as our big movie to show <laughs> to all our wives and children and uh, raise some money. Uh, they, uh, How did that go? <laughs> they, they stopped the movie halfway through. <laughs> um, and that was it for their fundraiser. But that's just, I mean, I've got to see this movie. Yeah, to see it, and there was the same guy with this Robert De Niro, and he was in The Godfather, and that man, oh man, this 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 is the kind of acting I want to I want to do if I'm lucky enough to do it. And it was and it was again it was like Giancarlo, it was just these actors who just finding whole worlds, and it's not and it's not just a physical world; it's an emotional world. It's a you know a real depth to what they were doing, and that that really got me. Yeah, just those two parts alone. Uh, what's his name? Johnny? Is it Johnny? Uh, oh God, I'm, I'm, I should research this stuff. But his Mean Streets character and and Travis Bickle are so. I mean, the only thing they have in common is they look like Robert De Niro. Right. I mean, they just have such wildly different energy and and everything. It's it's yeah yeah. And I, I remember as a kid, kind of just knowing you know, I was seeing something, something like The Godfather. Yeah. 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 And and for playing somebody who's, some, who's so tough, he had kind of an elegance to him too, mm-hmm. uh, especially in The Godfather, which was mm-hmm. really, really appealing. Um, and I've been in his presence a few times; he'll never talk to me. Uh, <laughs> well, he doesn't talk to anybody. Yeah, he doesn't talk to much of anyone. Yeah, that... <laughs> yeah. which that's an interesting thing too—that somebody who embodies so many 
so many amazing characters is so kind of taciturn and personal. Um, no, yeah. He's saving it. He's saving it. He's saving it. <laughs> he's saving it. Um, Welcome to From Beneath the Hollywood Sign. If you love old movies, Hollywood history, or the golden age of filmmaking, you've come to the right place. This is the podcast that talks about amazing stories of Tinseltown from another era and fascinating conversations with writer-producer Steve Kubine and actress-writer Nan McNamara. One particular argument, he ended up dislocating Ava's jaw. <gasps> Ava, she was such a tough cookie. Rather than cry or scream or anything like that, she... Or she, call the police. Or call the police like she should have, exactly. <laughs> What does she do? She takes an ashtray and she knocks him over the head and knocks him unconscious. That's how she fought back. She didn't know what to do, so she called Louis B. Mayer. I think I've killed Howard Hughes. What do I do? Revisit a time when the pictures were still big and everyone was ready for their close-up. When you want Tyrone Power instead of Tom Hardy, Jennifer Jones instead of Jennifer Lawrence, or Robert Mitchum rather than Robert Pattinson, then From Beneath the Hollywood Sign is the gin joint for you. Uh, yeah, and then also you mentioned uh, Alec Guinness too, with those um, those great healing comedies. With those, yeah, it's the same kind of thing. You know, they were at that time. It was not something I was used to watching. Um, and again, you know, if you ask me to tell you about the movies, I don't know if I can really tell you a lot about the movies. I can just tell you the impact that that yeah, actor. Yeah, no, that's what we're interested in. Yeah, uh, yeah. And and was 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 the Guinness thing like? Did you see him? Do you recall like the first time you saw him was when because he did in a lot of films he would play multiple characters, which is a sort of way of kind of announcing himself as an actor. He, I mean, he sort of preceded Peter Sellers in that way. Yeah, although they they often were in the same movie. Yeah, but did did that jump out at you immediately as well? Or oh yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, just trying to pull that kind of thing off and and doing it successfully, um, especially when I was was interested in all the you know those English actors, Lawrence Olivier. All of them, Ralph Richardson, but being able to do multiple characters, get away with it. Yeah. That just seemed to be the height of it. And there also, there seems to be a very, I mean, obviously, I know the reasons for some of this, but there there seems to be a very different approach to acting uh, over over there than here. If you sort of boil things down to really simplistic ideas, the, the sort of British approach seems very different to American. Do you, and 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 you're not somebody who leaps out I'm struggling with this again, not an actor, not trained, um, but you're someone who sort of, I, I can see the British connection there in you in a way I can't with a lot of American actors. Does that make sense? Yeah, it kind of makes sense. I do, I do feel like, I mean, that was always the, the sort of the rap on the English uh, is that they, they worked from the outside in, uh, mm. you know, Lawrence Olivier having those, that that moment in Othello when somebody came backstage and he was crying. And he said, Well, you're crying. He said, Because I was brilliant tonight. And I don't know what. <laughs> I don't know that story. Yeah. And, and just something emotionally happened to him that hadn't happened before. Mm. And didn't know how to have that happen again. Mm. Um, and, you know, that I think that's part of the benefit of training, um, having a technique. Uh, because we're not always going to feel it, especially on the stage. Right. And it's still our job to bring it and, and, and have people believe it and have it ring as true as possible. And it's, it's not 
always easy to do that from the outside in. You're really gonna really have to find that stuff. Go 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 somewhere in yourself and find those things. Do, do you think there's a cost in that to some to some actors though who sort of spend so much time kind of working from the inside out that that um I don't know, sort of an emotional cost to them that that takes its toll over time. I think of sort of a lot of a lot of American actors who sort of you go back and they're doing terrific work now, but you look at sort of the earlier work when they were just on fire. And I wonder if perhaps I don't know if something happens where you almost get cocaine, I think. You what? Cocaine. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's that simple. Success. <laughs> Success. I don't know. No, I just think of the, the cost, the emotional cost of having to go to those. Well, I know. Yeah. I, you know, I think they're probably, they probably are, are actors, artists, writers, you know, painters, where that's true. But, and, but there probably was a fragility there to begin with. Mm-hmm. And I, you, I don't think you can necessarily say because of the work right. that damaged them in that way. I, I think it, that may have been a, a, a path they were on whatever they were doing. And there's also the, the, the burnout question. I mean, you know, some people just, they, if they work really hard, I mean, they get, they get tired. Yeah, they do. It's true. I mean, if you look at an athlete, um, you know, in their early years and, and they're phenomenal. Um, and then to, to, to maintain that level of focus, physical determination, when you have other things coming to your life, children and wives, mm-hmm. life, whatever it is, and, and having to do it over and over and over again, uh, I think that does take a toll. And I think that's, it's hard to maintain that level of an emotional intensity yeah. and dedication over a whole career. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, like you see careers kind of ebb and flow, I think you can see, I don't want to say talent, but but connection maybe um, can ebb and flow as well. But you you both know too. It depends on material. That too. You can give everything to you know not such great material, and it doesn't really matter what you give to it. Yeah, it's really hard to be inspired when you're working with material that that doesn't inspire you. You know, but nonetheless, you have to fight some way to fake it. Everybody's professional. <laughs> right. uh, they have to find a way to. Um, to get the best out of whatever it is they're doing. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I can't, but I, and I think just as, as in terms of just, I mean, for obvious reasons, that's, that's got to take its worst toll on actors. Um, cause, cause the rest of us can have an off day and there's not a camera on us magnifying everything we're doing wrong. <laughs> right. And all your loved ones and the critics in the world, well, hopefully they're seeing it. Um, but it, but it, you're exposed. You really are exposed. And actors also have to deal with the fact that they're, they age. You know, they're not, they're not playing the ingenue anymore. I mean, I've, I've worked with actors who were worried about playing somebody a decade older because that meant they wouldn't be able to play a decade younger anymore because they, if they were successful, they would be thought of as you know a, an older character as opposed to a younger character, and a lot of that has to do with their. If you're going to spend time worrying about your place in the industry and your ability to be employed and you know what's going to come down the pike for you and who are you in competition with it's pretty draining oh tell me all about it <laughs> i was gonna say joe have you met our guest i'm sure he's <laughs> uh, yeah. and and, you know, and yeah go ahead 
No, I was just going to say, I, I really thought I was free from that, um, that, that feeling. Uh, and I always, you know, it, it, it confused me about actors who weren't willing to just do, have fun doing a character, if it, even if it was 10 years older. But I, I was in my late 50s when, when the first time I was asked to do a character like 65 years old. I was so offended. <laughs> <laughs> really? Yeah. I turned it down. And I, it's, it's dumb. But, you know, it, it is, it's a reality. I mean, just as being, you know, a, a man aging, but particularly in the business, it's... Um, right. Well, I think beyond the, the, the sort of obvious service aspects, there's also like mortality is just always a little bit terrifying. And the last thing I want to do is, is spend any time at all making myself older than I am. You know, just... Yeah. Uh, <laughs> It's like, well, and it's exacerbated with actresses because you know the, the so much of their appeal initially rides on their youthful appearance and their zest and their sexiness and all that stuff. And, and, and when you look at some of the ones like Joan Crawford and Betty Davis who were able to maintain Barbara Stanwyck, people who are able to maintain their status in the industry and continue to do lead roles uh, in in major films. Uh, I mean, you really got to hand it to them. I mean, that's 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 a very tricky thing to maneuver. And even though they all ended up having to do horror movies, because that's basically what what they would be, you know, uh, popular as when they in, the, in their aging years, um, they were still stars. Yeah, it's pretty amazing, and the business really is tough on women. Yeah, um, and it's, you don't even have to be old. I mean, just a woman getting under her thirties. So, yeah, you know. You feel the clock ticking for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I also feel. And then when you see actors or you know, men, men or women, um, uh, there seem to be some who sort of go through a phase where, uh, when they do start to kind of age out of the ingenue parts, they seem to delight in it. And I can't imagine how much joy there must be in not having to spend every waking minute worrying about how youthfully gorgeous I am anymore, and being able to sort of embrace, uh, you know, kind of. Well, that's sort of the Charlotte Rampling approach. You know, I mean, she had a great career and she was seven times gorgeous, you know, when she was younger, but didn't seem to be interested in that part of acting. You know, it was the, it was the, it was the acting part, the roles, the the characters that were interesting to her and she's still going strong. Yeah. Yeah, It's, it's, it's clearly liberating not to have to kind of worry about that stuff anymore. Although obviously she still looks amazing, but she doesn't have to pass for 22 anymore, which has to be nice. She's obviously an actor at heart. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and, and fortunate enough to have people who recognize that and hire her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you were, uh, we also mentioned um, Peter Sellers, of course, which uh, yeah. you were a fan of. I mean, um, uh, you had to have loved uh, being there, I imagine. Well, I just, I just think that's just surely one of the great films of all time. Um, I, 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 uh, it was Hal Ashby who directed that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and and I mean, just his performance was just magical to me. Uh, so simple. Um, the movie itself was magical, beautiful to look at. All the actors were terrific, um, and it just kind of embodied that what I, you know, if I write something, it had things, it's, there are things in it that, that has a good humor in it. Um, a, a world that is just on the edge of, of, um, 
we really believe this or not, um, but it, but you do, and 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 a large part is because of him. Um, and, and and he talked about, you know, and I know you guys know this that he felt like he himself had no personality, mm. and his personality really was in the actors he played and the choices he made. Right. Uh, and I. I can relate to that a little bit for a long time in my life. Just socially, it was hard for me. Mm. Uh, you know, having a conversation like we're having now would, would, would be hard for me. When I was doing St. Elsewhere and it was time to do press, um, I just was so embarrassed by it, so self-conscious of opening my mouth and having to say something. Uh, I really, really want it just to be about the acting um, and let that kind of speak for itself. Um, and I've become more comfortable, but you know, during a period of my life, I, I really felt like I was more me acting mm. than when I wasn't. I right. felt more fully myself as other characters. Interesting, yeah, that that really um came through, I think, in that performance on in being there, where because I, I, I'd never seen it, you know, I was yeah, I, I grew up on Peter Sellers and this sort of madcap zaniness and, you know, so many brilliant films, but there was always that kind of kinetic energy to them. Mm-hmm. And the thing about being there is that if you don't recognize it's Peter Sellers, you'd never know, you know, it's just not anything like, I mean, am I wrong, Joe? You've surely seen more than I have, but I mean, well, I can't no, I mean, he's a, it's a very still performance, but you know, it was yeah. also one of his, one of his last uh, and if you read, there's a number of books about Sellers who was apparently a somewhat difficult person. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a do- actually a documentary uh, called, I think, uh, Ghost of Peter Sellers that Peter yeah. Middick did about the making of a movie called The Ghost of the Noonday Sun, which was never finished, uh, in which his uh, eccentricities are on display <laughs> for, for an en- yeah. entire feature film running time. Um, but, uh, but, you, but you can't deny how brilliant he was. I mean, it must have been, I mean, people, Blake Edwards had to say to himself, okay, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to go through another one of my Peter Sellers episodes to make another Pink Panther movie because they're, they're so popular and we're, we all get rich. And, and the best one, oddly enough, is A Shot in the Dark, which was based on a play that didn't have Inspector Clouseau in it. Mm. Uh, and, um, but if, but it's that that movie is you don't really need any of the other Clouseau movies. I mean that that's that's the one. It's got all the great stuff in it, and he is so hilarious in that picture. Um, I it was, it, we were we were lucky, and, and that's you know beyond Kubrick and all those other things he yeah. did. Uh, you know we were, we were lucky to have somebody that good to look at. Well, you know we were talking about heart. You know you're talking about an actor or a character bringing heart to something. And, and, you know, the things I'd read about, and I just read a little bit recently about Peter Sellers, is you would not say as a, as a you know, as a person, he had a lot of heart. Yeah. Um, he was hard on people. Um, and, it, and it's interesting to me that, that he could do being there, a movie that felt like it had so much heart, and he was at the heart of it. And where did that come from? Is it something we're bringing to it? Is it just the story that's being told? Um, you know, a man who can be so complicated outside of that film and so simple um, and endearing when he's in that role. It's, uh, it's a mystery to me. 
It, it always felt to me like something that you had to get to a certain point or he did in his life to be able to play. Cause I think with, with all the baggage he carried and everything else, there had to be an awareness of how insane he was perceived to be by, by other people. And that, that the frenetic pace and everything of all the other performances was sort of a way of protecting himself yeah. uh, and sort of standing there. And, you know, cause he does nothing in being there. He does a lot of nothing in being there. That had to be terrifying for him. Well, I wonder if there was sort of a, a freedom in it too. Yeah. Of not having to do anything. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I'm envious of that. Just being able to let go of it all. It is an endlessly fascinating movie for yeah. so many reasons, but uh, chief of, among them, his performance. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and was, uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say that whole time period though, um, you know, Probably all of us are fans of, of movies during that during that time, you know, that came out of the seventies. And, oh, yeah. and, uh, and the kind of the kind of work that people were doing, and you know, I looked down there, Dustin Hoffman, yeah, and that Midnight Cowboy and Happy Young. Again, just the the range of those characters, um, and working with uh, Steve McQueen, who was a honest to God movie star, and Happy Young. Um, but even with him, you got the sense of character. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think it's one of his better performances, too. I mean, I think if you, uh, they, they squabbled a lot, I think is my recollection. Am I right, Joe? But it seems to me like you throw somebody in a room with Dustin Hoffman, they're going to have to work harder. <laughs> yeah. Especially in that era. And he's, yeah, that that time period, especially. I mean, I, I always think the one that always boggles me is, um, because he played so many, uh, as diverse as they were, there was a kind of nerdiness, wimpiness, cowardice, whatever, to so many of these characters. Um, and then you see him in straight time. And you absolutely believe him as a hardened, violent criminal, you know? And it's, uh, um, yeah, that, it's a genuinely great, great, great actor. Yeah. Um, do you remember, like, seeing, did you see Midnight Cowboy in theaters when it came out, or...? Did I see what? Midnight Cowboy or Papillon in theaters. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, of course. Um, and in, when I was in high school, Straw Dogs, mm -hmm. uh, you know, that thing. And yeah. Yeah. Um, and that really hit me. You know, uh, Wait Until Dark, um, Alan Arkin and, and, and that. Yeah. Uh, and Alan Arkin, I loved him in Catch-22. Uh, and he's, you know, he, he's also somebody, I get to know him a little because his son and I worked together. We did, um, Adam and I did. I actually worked with all of his children at this point in different ways. Um, but a Adam uh, and I became good friends and I got to meet Alan a little bit and, and talk to him. Uh, but he was another one who, uh, you just sensed this range, even though he had this very, very specific personality and still does. Um, you, you, you've got a real sense of characters and range within that. Yeah. And then I it's something like wait until dark where it's, it's so he didn't do too many of those either, where he was just a absolutely terrifying character in that film. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. which I, I, again, it's something I'm always fascinated by how somebody who you can have so much kind of baggage with can just throw it out the window and the first scene and just change your perspective on them entirely. I, I, I love that. Yeah. I love that. It's, um, 
I don't know. I'm still, I would, I would, I would love to see Woody Allen play, you know, a murderer or something. That would be fun. I mean, like a brutal, you know, he's killed people in movies, but uh, it's, it's so fun when people sort of turn that on their, on its head and, and disrupt yeah. your perception of them, which to go back, you know, Woody as a murderer. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately. Um, uh, yeah. Wow. And, um, uh, and then of course you talk about Scorsese and De Niro. Uh, um, it's interesting. He's, he's sort of transitioned, although he worked with De Niro in the last one. Um, he's done more films with DiCaprio now, right, Joe? Is that the, I think so. I think they've done more films together. Um, and, and some great ones, I, but I, I still, to me, maybe it's just an age thing to me. It's like, it's Scorsese and De Niro or, or, like the team I think of uh, when I think of great actor director teams. Well, I think you know that's again it's that that. Well, I'm going to say you know I I I did a movie called The Desperate Hours. Yes. Um, uh, and I did that before I did, I think before, before I did Indian Runner, because Sean Sean asked Michael Cimino about me when he was thinking about asking me to do Indian Runner. Uh, Michael Cimino Cimino had directed that. Yeah. Talk about turbulent partnerships. Um, I think he had done four movies with Mickey Rourke before that. Mm. And right, Anthony, yeah, sure. Hopkins, yep. Anthony Hopkins was in it also. Um, he and Mickey were the stars of it. And Anthony uh, had, had not done a movie here in five years, I think, because he had had such a reputation as a wild man drinking. Um, I think the last movie he had done was Meet Me on the Bounty with, with Mel Gibson. Oh, Mel Gibson, yeah. Yeah, and that did not that did not go well for them, I think. Um, and he went back to England, and he did a couple movies there. That Charing Cross Road movie with Anne Bancroft, um, maybe something else. He did some plays that everybody said he was just amazing in. But the thing he really wanted to do, and he always talked about it, is Hollywood movies. It's what he loved. And, uh, so Desperate Hours was the first movie he did after being banished. Um, and he was so grateful and he was sober. And uh, Mickey was kind of at the height of his misbehavior as a movie mm. star. Mm. And she and Chimino, I had worked together a lot. And before, before Mickey got to arrive in town, um, I did some pre-shooting with Michael. And it could have been a better experience. It was so much fun shooting in Zion National Park and my character in this big escape through the park and gets killed in a river. And, um, and then we get to the sets in Salt Lake City. And Mickey, who I actually like, and he, he's very nice to me, he, uh, he, he was just not at, at, at a good place. You know, we would all be there in the morning, ready to shoot at 7.30, 8 o'clock in the morning, and he wouldn't show up until noon. Um, and we'd have to shoot without him. And, and, and Anthony really got it. We really got what was going on with, with Mickey. And would talk to him and spend time with him. And, and uh, really together, they, they, they got through that movie. And I really had a lot of admiration uh, for, for Anthony, for being willing to step up uh, to somebody who was so talented and yeah. really a big deal. And the relationship between he and, and Michael was complicated as could be. And Michael was not able to take it out on Mickey because he was his movie star. So he would wind up taking it out on us, oh. um, which, which made it hard. Um, I got it. You, you could see the dynamic. 
but it was it was not a lot of fun to be around. But still, they kept working together. Right. That that always fascinates me too. I mean, obviously the, the quintessential version of that being uh, Herzog and Kinski, um, where oh, you yeah. know <laughs> they're threatening to murder each other on every film they work on and firing guns at each other. And, well, I don't know if this is really true or not, but we were I was doing a movie in um, called Proof of Life in mm, Ecuador. Yep. And the location manager on that was the location manager on on that Aguirre. Oh wow! Yeah. Um, <laughs> And he was talking about um, a battle that got so heated uh, that um, that Kinski went back to his room to get a gun to come after mm -hmm. uh, uh, Herzog. Yeah, and he chased him for three days. They he chased him for three. Yeah, it's probably total baloney, but it's a great story. And and so Kinski finally got so exhausted, and he went back and put the gun away, and they went back to work. I don't know if that's true, but the Location manager says it was. Imagine, imagine your relationship is so you know you've you've done it enough that you know that all you have to do is elude him for three days and then you'll get your actor back if, <laughs> if he doesn't kill you. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and yet there's something to those movies. Kind of hard on the financiers, though. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, as someone who doesn't have to pay the cost uh, to to go through all that to just enjoy the films, there is something to those movies. There's there, there's a there's a distinct and unique energy to them that I have to imagine comes from some of that tension. <laughs> and then maybe there is something to insanity that when it shows up on film, it's fascinating to watch. Yeah, you know, yeah. You know, we're talking about actors who, like Montgomery Clift, at the you know the end of his life, mm -hmm. um, completely fascinating to watch. Mm -hmm. and, and part of what you sense is that that soul in there that is just tortured. Yeah. Um, you know, Spencer Tracy, I guess, talked about that. Um, and and catching that on film, you know, it'd be nice if we could do that without having tortured souls. But but sometimes it's it is fascinating to watch. As as, as long as long as we've got them, might as well put them to work. I guess is yeah. There's yeah. a, there's a, I, having worked with Chimita, I don't know if you give me any insight into this. I saw him once, uh, years ago, he introduced a screening of Thunderbolt and Lightfoot mm -hmm. and he talked at the American Cinematheque and he talked about what an amazing experience it was. Cause apparently he found out afterwards that Eastwood had just on a daily basis been fighting with a studio that was trying to muck with the thing. They shot his first draft. It was exactly the movie he wanted it to be. Clint maintains it's one of his best films ever. It's an incredible movie. He came to Chimino after that and said, this was, I, I, I've loved working with you on this. Um, I will do anything, anything you want to do, I will produce. I don't even have to be in it. And Chimino said to a crowd, and I, I, friends who were there were all still stupefied by this. He said, I, I didn't take it because I wanted my freedom. And he was basically being handed a ticket to make any movie he wanted that either would or would not have Clint Eastwood in it. And decades later, I still can't figure out a movie that fits outside of those two options. Does that? <laughs> he, he wanted the freedom to make Year of the Dragon later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But he seemed, yeah. he seemed like an interesting character. In Heaven's Gate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he was definitely, he was a fascinating guy. Um, you know, I mean, it, it, he's, he's become something else um, later in his life. She, she I think. Yeah, oh, is that is that confirmed? Did that oh, yeah. Michelle? Oh, I didn't realize that had, that had happened. I'm, I'm, yeah. Okay, I knew there were rumors. I'm 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 behind on this. I apologize. I've not met her. 
since her, you know, since the, the change. Um, but there was a power, you know, uh, a power about Michael when I worked with, with Michael. Yeah. Um, and he was, it, it's, he was, uh, you know, short, um, but had that kind of power that comes with short people who are really uh, out to, to prove something. Yeah. And he, he had that, had that aura about him. Um, and it was, you know, I wish I could have seen him at another time. And it may not have been a whole lot different. I worked with John Savage in Inside Moves and talked about doing Deer Hunter. Mm-hmm. And John, of course, was brilliant. Yeah. Uh, that. They all were. But John, I think, did not get the recognition that the other others did. And John, I just thought was amazing. I absolutely um, agree. Yeah. Yeah. And the, uh, the demands uh, on the actors and on the crew to get that film made and the amount of footage shot and you know, the number of takes they would do, takes, you know, and there's other directors who, who, who had done that as well and probably still do it. But the idea of just exhausting the actors with the number of takes until they're not acting anymore, they're just there on film. Um, I'm, I'm, I've worked with one director who does that. I'm not, not crazy about it. Um, but you can't deny the deer hunter and what that movie is and the impact of that movie. Yeah. I always wonder with that approach, though, it's like when, um, is that a testimony to the the actors or is it a testimony to that particular process? Because it does seem grueling. It seems, I, I would imagine, needlessly so. I would well, especially if you use take two. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> True. Yes, yes. Uh, well, man, David, um, thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with us. Uh, yeah, like I said, I'm happy that you asked me to, and it was fun to talk to you guys. Fantastic, because I, I, I really have. It's just one of the great joys of this show is, is we get to reach out to people whose work we admire and get to talk to them about what makes them tick through something that makes all of us tick. So mm-hmm. um, just an absolute thrill. And, I'm going to say uh, one more thing if I can. Oh, but absolutely. Yes, yeah, sure. It's sure. not just honor. You know, the first movie I did, with him, uh, never not knowing anything about film. He made me sit with him every day in dailies and say, listen, this is what you're doing. This is what you're doing. Teaching me about being on film. Um, there are things in that that I, I wished I could take back, you know. Just, um, but, but we got to work together 25 years later on 16 blocks. Um, and he was 75 years old. He was 50 when we did, when we did Inside Moves. I thought he was so old. <laughs> uh, I was there at his 50th birthday party with all these Hollywood friends. Um, but then, then I worked with him at 75. And he knew so much more about acting in movies and the things we're talking about, simplicity, mm-hmm. um, economy. Uh, he was shooting that action movie in 10 hours a day. You know, he didn't want to do, we'll go longer than 12 hours. He saw no need for it. He was getting all that done. Um, and getting fantastic performances from everybody. Yeah, and I, just, and I just felt like over those twenty-five years, we had somehow gotten through aging, experiencing a simplicity of communication with with each other that I I will value forever. And and, I, and he's one of those directors I will I will uh, give credit for my career and and. Uh, being an example of what a director can be um, and a partnership can be. So uh, 
just a shout out to Dick. Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah, no, he's a, a great, a great director. Do you remember anything? Was there anything specific? Do you remember? I know this is going back and, and you're sort of talking about the overall experience, but do you, was there anything specific he said to you that sort of you, you, you latched onto that you held onto that um, was particularly helpful or is that? No, particularly upsetting. He said, listen, your camera does not like you from this side. <laughs> but always remember that. Uh, Dave, David is pointing to the left side of his face. So if uh, well, you know, you working can, with you him, can, just remember, always should you be. can remember that. But if you <laughs> until you become Edward G. Robinson and you have the clout to say, I can't come down that staircase because this is not my good side, and actually make them build a different staircase, which oh, yeah. did that happen? Because he was a star. Yes. Oh my a god! Picture what, called what the film? glass web. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, but, but you know, and, and Claudette Colbert, same thing. I mean, you know, she had one side of her face that was the good side. And if you look at any movie, she's always entering from one side. There's always, I mean, obviously there has to be shots of on the other side of her face in order to, to make the scene. But but it's it's a lot of attention is paid in lighting and staging to getting only that one side. And, and well, what I, do you think, David? Because I mean, you appear to be relatively, you know... Uh, uh, <laughs> And now, anytime you see me, that's all you're going to see. Oh my God, that's his left side. His left side, <laughs> yeah. Well, we could fool him and flip the film. What's that? <laughs> and they'll all be confused. <laughs> what? What? Do Do you see that? Do you? Is that something? Oh my God! Of course, that's all I can see now. Do you really? <laughs> Twenty six years old. Now, every time I see myself, that's all I see. <laughs> I get picked honor to thank for that. <laughs> wow wow well uh i all your signs seem lovely to me sir so uh, <laughs> thanks a lot thank you so much for doing this this is great uh the movie right now is the virtuoso it's it's out now um like i say you can get it streaming or or in physical media which we prefer here um but uh david morse thank you for joining us uh look forward to seeing the next 20 things you do and, and beyond Our show was recorded from several well-stocked bunkers. We can't wait to get back to beautiful downtown Burbank. We're the official podcast of TrailersFromHell.com, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. This is Josh Olson for the Movies That Made Me. Stay safe out there, folks. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.